0: Um, so I do want to address uh, in Hebrews chapter 6 this notion of does the Bible teach that someone can lose their salvation? Um, and so what I would like to do is this is going to be a little more of a concise um, look at Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, but I still want to cover all that needs to be covered. Um, I believe this is an important question. I believe Hebrews chapter 6 is such an important uh, chapter in Scripture that I, I think many times people fall to one of the two extremes on the issue. I think people generally, and, and I'm just giving you an overview, I think people generally look at Ephesians chapter 6 as either saying that Christians can lose their salvation if they're not careful and they walk away, uh, or that Christians can't lose their salvation, but this passage isn't talking to Christians. I happen to be of the persuasion that I think both of those um, are incorrect. I don't believe that's what the writer or the intent of Hebrews chapter 6 is. And so I kind of want to give you an overview of what I think the writer is trying to do. Uh, And then I want to look at a couple phrases that I think are very important to fully understanding this section. I I do want to tell you, I believe that in Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4, that the writer of Hebrews is talking to Christians. Um, so um, so that that's the one thing I, I'll say right up front is I believe this chapter is written to believers. Um, at the same time, I do not believe that it teaches in any way, shape, or form um, that if you fall back or you backslide, um, if you fall away, that what the writer's trying to say here is that you can never come back to repentance or come back to relationship with Christ. Um, so I just want to um, pretty much I think the first three verses set the the tone of what the writer's trying to do. It actually goes all the way back to uh, kind of chapter five. Chapter five ends with uh, the problem of immaturity in the in the church or amongst believers, and that's where six kind of picks up. Is uh, so the, the entire context of chapter six is dealing with the maturity of the believer. Or maybe you might say dealing with the immaturity of believers. Um, I I would say, listen, God wants to develop you and mature you so that he can bring you into the destiny he has for you. Uh, God has a purpose for each and every one of us. And I think Hebrews 6 is one of those chapters that um, kind of paint a picture of how God has to mature us um, so that we can move into what it is he has planned for us. I think of Joseph Think of Joseph um, being sold into slavery, beaten by his brothers, sold into slavery, falsely accused at Potiphar's house, prisoned in Pharaoh's uh, prison, interprets two dreams. They promise they won't forget him. They forget him, and and so it takes 13 years or so for Joseph uh, in Egypt to finally become what it is he dreamed, and that is that he would have authority over his brothers and, and his family uh, yet he was immature when he first received that that promise. And so God had to mature him, allow him to go through things that God didn't create him for, uh, but that God allowed so that he could become the person God created him to be. Um, I believe this is more along the lines of what Hebrews chapter 6 is dealing with. It's It's dealing with this crucial question again. Does the Bible teach anywhere that I can lose my salvation And for those who who believe the Bible teaches that, typically Hebrews 6 is the passage they want to go to. So right up front, I just want to submit to you tonight, I don't believe that Hebrews 6 teaches that believers can lose their salvation. Uh, But I do believe that chapter 6 is written to believers. Um, And so we look at, I tell you what I want to do, um, just quickly, I want to read the last um, four chapters, uh, four verses of chapter 5. This is what it says. We have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the basic principles of God's revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those who whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. So this leads us into chapter 6. And so we see automatically what the writer of Hebrews is doing is talking about the importance and warning in chapter 6 about the need to mature in Christ. Uh, I just want to share, uh, jump ahead and share. Verse 12 of chapter 6 uses some of the same terminology, in essence, that chapter 5 does. It says this, Uh, So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. That's that's 6 verse 12. And so we see that that at least, starting at the end of chapter 5, 5 verse 11, going into at least through verse 12, Of Chapter 6 that what the writer is talking about is the maturity of believers. He's not talking about the uh, Salvation of believers. He's talking about the maturity of believers, and I believe this is very evident uh, In this passage Uh, So let's just look at at chapter 6 for a moment And I know that many of you um, are not gonna be able to watch this live you tuned in earlier And and there was no no sound and so my prayers that um, you'll make your way back to this and uh, and again I apologize So let's just uh, look again at at 6, beginning with this notion of the maturing believer. And this is what it says, Therefore, let us leave the elementary teachings about Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. Faith in God, teachings about ritual washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. And we will do this if God permits. And so even here in the first Three verses what we see is that God uh, through the writer of Hebrews God expressing the need for Christians to mature in their faith right and so we see that terminology we see that um, that um, leading in from chapter 5 going all the way into the end of chapter 6 is this um, encouragement and warning that we are to mature as believers so this is one reason I believe that, that chapter 6 is definitely referring to believers. Is when we look back at chapter 5, and we look all the way through the end of chapter 6, that the writer is talking about the maturity of believers all throughout that, that section of this, this book. And so it, it seems to be illogical for the writer to change midstream Talk three or four verses about something different than what the rest of the content is, and then go back to what he was writing about before. So logically speaking, it makes, it makes sense that what the writer is talking about is the maturity of believers. Also, there's some phrases that the writer uses throughout Hebrews that helps us to better understand that this really is speaking to Christians or to believers. So verse 4 starts with with this. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the holy gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, and who tasted God's good word and in the powers, or tasted in God's good word and the powers of the coming age. So this is where we need to look and just stop for one moment and see that that this reference is to actual believers, genuine believers, not to people who simply heard. Now, common grace is something that is, that's real. What do I mean by common grace? I mean that if, if an unbeliever comes with a believer to church, and the believers in that church are worshiping God, then the non-believer experiences this kind of common grace or this experience of God, not as a believer. It doesn't, it doesn't save them, um, but they are covered under common grace at that point. They're experiencing what the, a, a bit of the Holy Spirit. I do not believe that the writer in Hebrews is talking about common grace. I believe the writer of Hebrews is, is talking about the maturity of the believer. Um, We also see this outside the church. If if one spouse is a believer and another spouse is an unbeliever, we see some common grace extended over that household. Through prayer, through reading the scriptures, that one who is saved brings about some common grace that's experienced. Again, it's not grace to forgive others, but it's people experiencing a little bit of God based on the believer's witness of God and living out the testimony of God in their life. Now, why do I believe that verse 4 is talking to believers? Now, this is important because if it's not talking to believers, then that answers the question up front. If this is a passage that's written to people who have kind of um, experienced God but not been saved by God, then that takes care of the whole question. Then what we're talking about in this chapter um, are people who have not been saved. Which makes little sense because the intent of the chapter is the maturity of the believer. So why in the world, in a chapter that's talking about the maturity of the believer, switch focus and start talking about the judgment of someone who's an unbeliever? And the answer is that doesn't make sense. At the same time, uh, in verses 4 through 8, many people will say this is teaching that Christians can lose their salvation. And so I want to start by looking at verse 4 and showing you why I believe this is written to believers. And then I want to look at the next few verses to see what, what, I, what they entail. Uh, why is it that this is talking about judgment as opposed to the loss of salvation? So we look at verse 4 and it says, It's impossible to renew to repentance those who were enlightened. The first question I think someone should ask is, impossible for who? And the answer is it's impossible for us as men and women, as, as Christians. That if we lack maturity to the point that we have a falling away, and, and we're not growing with Christ, but we are, um, in essence, becoming more isolated from Christ. Why do I believe that's what this passage is about? And, and for me, it's the, the phrase in there, two times it's used. Uh, where, the, uh, where the writer of Hebrews says um, it's impossible to renew the repentance to those who were once in lighting who tasted the heavenly gift. This is an important, tasted is an important word or phrase that we find in Hebrews. Uh, tasted the heavenly gift, who shared in the Holy Spirit, who tasted God's word and the powers of the coming age. Now, why, why do I believe this clearly speaks to the believer? If you go back to Hebrews 2.9, and you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read, it's talking about Jesus Christ in his humanity who went to the point of death for us. And in verse 9 it says, But we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace he might taste death for everyone. Now it's the same phrase, same wording used there, about how Christ tasted death, that here in this chapter it's talking about someone who's tasted the heavenly gift, the Holy Spirit, the Word of God. Um, we know that the writer of Hebrews is not saying that, that Jesus nibbled on death or, or ate a little bit of death. When the writer of Hebrews says he tasted death, he means that Jesus died, that he went all the way. Uh, it's not a partial thing, but Jesus literally ate of death. Uh, and and died, and so the, this phrase is important because the same writer is writing here just uh, four chapters later, and he says to those who were those who tasted the heavenly gift and tasted the good word and the powers of the coming age. If that's the case, then it's 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 this image of taking in all of what God has offered in salvation, and so I, I believe simply by looking at the phrase. Uh, taste, that, it, that in six, this person tasted the heavenly gift, uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, tasted the, the word of God, that these are all phrases um, that mean this person became a Christian. Just like in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 9 of the same book, Jesus tastes death and literally becomes dead. Um, so I think that in and of itself is very powerful and, and important. Also, remember the context that we're, we're in. We're in the context of someone b- growing and maturing in Christ. And, and so the warning is be careful, Christian. Be careful because if you're not careful, if God permits, you can find yourself in an impossible situation where you've fallen away from God and where your heart has become so uh, heavy and hardened that you can't even find your own way back to, to discipleship, to um, full commitment and maturity to Christ, to God in Christ. And, and so uh, not only does this uh, view take on the, the content of the passage and the context of the passage, this is a passage written about the maturity of the believer. And so it, it seems to me um, very logical and also... Um, that it seems uh, to go with the text to say that in verse 4, it is talking about a believer. And so the writer doesn't change and address unbelievers. The writer is still warning and encouraging believers. Watch out, be, be on guard, persist, grow in your walk with Christ so that you don't find your walk with Christ becoming that of an infant, that of a baby, which is where he ends chapter 5 by saying, boy, you ought to be teachers by now, but you're still infants in Christ. You need to grow in maturity. You need to get off of milk and begin to eat the solid food of God's word. So chapter 4 seems to to me, uh, through study, looking at both the, the the phrases that are used by the same writer and looking at the context in which this passage falls to be written to believers. If that's the case, then chapter Uh, 6 verse 5 picks up on, um, in regard to this believer that's being warned, don't fall away. Uh, Verse 5 says, um, who tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, we've read that, and who have fallen away. So these people have, um, they haven't matured. That they haven't stayed where they are. I believe there's a common misconception out there that we can just kind of remain where we are with Christ, and that's just wrong. Either we're growing in maturity with Christ, we're we're growing closer to Christ, or we're becoming further isolated from Christ. It's it's not a uh, status of whether we're saved; it's a status of our sanctification. Are we growing in Christ, or are we going backwards? right, in our walk. We see this in all relationships um, that humans have. In, in, in the relationship of a marriage, a husband and a wife, we see times where they are growing toward intimacy with one another and other times where they're growing in further isolation from one another. But very rarely, if at all, do we find any relationships where people just kind of stay at this plateau point. We're either growing or falling away. And so the writer here is, it's a warning for believers who may be falling away. Who, who may be, they're not maturing in Christ. In fact, they are falling further away from Christ. It's not, they're saved. They're believers. But they're, they're not growing in Christ. Right? They're not becoming more like Christ. They're not becoming imitators of Christ. And in that sense, they've fallen away. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that a believer is falling away from Christ? Well, the, the writer of Hebrews answers that for us. So, and those who have fallen away, uh, verse 6 continues, this is because of their own harm. They are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Now, an unbeliever doesn't have the ability to re-crucify Christ. There's another reason I believe this is about a believer. This is written to believers. And this is ultimately what the writer of Hebrews is saying. That if you're saved and have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, but then you go outside of the church or outside of your home, and you live like the world, right? So, so you're in church, and you, you claim to be a child of God. You claim to be saved by Jesus Christ. You claim to be And dwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. And if you are saved, but you're living however you want, then you are re-crucifying Christ and you're holding him up to contempt. Essentially, you're declaring to the whole world that Jesus Christ was good enough to save you, but not good enough to change you. This is what the writer's saying, that if you fall away and you're living this lifestyle... Where you claim to be a Christian. And, and rightfully say so, You may be a Christian. But you're living in such a manner. Where you've fallen away from God. That now you are, you're holding the name of Christ. In contempt. To the world around you. And so every day we are either. Witnessing and testifying. To the goodness and the greatness. And the power of God. That through his crucifixion. He's brought life to us. That he defeated death by death. Or. You are a Christian who is living life in such a manner that when people look at your your life, you are testifying and being a witness to what can be perceived as the contempt of Jesus. That you believe this Jesus is Savior, but you don't really believe he cares about change in your life. You, You don't really think he cares about how you live. You think he's okay with you living however you want to live. You'll go to church on Sunday, Sunday night, Sunday morning, Sunday school. You'll even write your tithes. But when you go throughout the week, you're going to live however you want to live. This is who the the writer of Hebrews is talking about. And rightfully so in the context of maturing as a believer in Christ. As we mature, we walk more like Christ. As we mature, we become uh, imitators of Christ. And so if this is the case and we're living life where we're growing in relationship to Christ, then this is an encouragement. This writing here in chapter 6 encourages us. If we're not growing in Christ, and we're falling back into old habits, and falling back into old temptations, uh, then I'm not saying that you're lost. Uh, uh, You may very well be saved, but what you're declaring to the world is a contempt for Jesus. Because Christ did not come to die so that you might only go to heaven... He came to die that you might go to heaven and that while on earth you might glorify him and that others might see him in and through you and us. Verse 7 continues and says, For the ground that drinks the rain. now." This is, let me just, verse 7 and 8 are going to give a comparison between the fruitfulness of a healthy vineyard, so to speak, and of an unhealthy vineyard. And what they represent is our works in life. And so the good field brings forth good fruit out of faithful work for Christ. And the bad ground brings forth bad fruit out of the fruitless and faithless work of the one who's fallen away. Here's what it says. Verse 7 says, For the ground that drinks the rain, that often falls on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those whom it has cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it's worthless and about to be cursed and at the end will be burned. Now this is the part where a lot of people equate the, the, the fruit of this field being burned with the notion of hell. And uh, the problem is it, it just doesn't. It's not an illusion to hell here. What it is an allusion to is the judgment seat of Christ where believers will stand before God and give an account for their life here on earth. And so all believers are going to stand before the Lord Jesus and we've been taught especially in 1 Corinthians 3 I would encourage you um, to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3 11 through 15 and what you see is a picture of this exact illustration given here. uh, A picture of a field that the rain falls on it, it becomes a healthy field, it grows fruit, and that fruit is then used to be a blessing to to other people. Or you have a field here where thorns and thistles have popped up, and they have um, choked out the fruit. And it's a fruitless field. Uh, And this is an allusion to the life of a faithless believer. One who um, is saved And yet the work that he does is not based on faith in Christ. It's unproductive. It's unworthy of the glory of God. And so according to Scripture, believers will stand at the judgment seat of Christ and all the work that's been done out of a genuine heart, all the work that's been done that's been fruitful, all the work that's been done through faith, that you're rewarded for that at the judgment seat of Christ. But for all of our works that have been done out of faithlessness, all the works that we've been done that are done out of our own righteousness and not the righteousness of God is compared to the work of that of a field that has thorns and thistles. And so here's what we know that at the judgment seat of Christ, that all the works we do that have been fruitless and faithless, the Bible teaches us they will be burned up. And so when you look at, uh, at verses 7 and 8, it's a clear depiction of the judgment at the judgment seat of Christ where our works will be judged. And the works done from a genuine heart that are done out of faith and to bring glory to God, we will be blessed for them like a field that brings forth fruit, we're blessed. Verse 8 talks about this fruitless field where everything's choked out by the thorns and thistles. This is a reflection of works that we've done based on our own goodness, for our own image, out of pridefulness or arrogance. This is work that's not done out of genuine faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, nor are we doing it to bring glory and honor to God, but rather to to bring glory and honor to ourselves. And when this is the case, according to Scripture and, and at least 1 Corinthians, then those works at the judgment seat of Christ will be burned up in the fire. In fact, 1 Corinthians says this, and I think this is a great passage, great verse to go along with chapter 6 here, especially verses 4 through 8, uh, where in 1 Corinthians 3.15, we're kind of taught this. Uh, The passage says, he, talking about a believer, he he may be saved, or it doesn't say maybe, it says he will be saved, but he will be saved only by going through the fire, and so so verses seven and eight are a clear depiction of the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's just kind of take verse four through eight and ask the question: uh, What exactly is going on here? Is, is this to Christians or non-Christians? Is this about salvation or sanctification? Is this about judgment in hell or judgment of the believer at the judgment seat of Christ? And all the evidence that we have, based on the writer's context of maturing in Christ, based on the writer's use of the phrase, phrase, taste, to taste the heavenly gift, to taste the Holy Spirit, to taste the good word of God in the coming age, all of these are references to believers. And so what we have here in in the beginning of chapter 6 is a warning for Christians to be maturing in Christ and for Christians to be careful not to fall away from their walk with God in the sense of that they're not growing closer to him they're they're falling toward isolation from him now verse 9 is a beautiful verse because here's what Paul uh, excuse me here's what the writer of Hebrews essentially says the writer of Hebrews essentially says in verse 9 now we know that this will not happen to any one of you And so so the writer of Hebrews is writing almost a hypothetical saying, be careful that you're maturing in Christ, because if you're not maturing in Christ, you're falling away. And that means you're going to have to go through the fire for your salvation, for the works that you did on this side of eternity. Verse 9 reads this way in, in my passage. Even though we are speaking this way, dearly loved friends, in your case, we're confident of these things that are better and that pertain to salvation. So, so the apostle uh, or the, the writer writing the book, Hebrews writes to the church, and, and here's essentially what he says. We know he's writing to believers because he says, uh, listen, friends, dear love friends, we know that in your case, we're confident in your case, actually, that, thing, that these are things that are going to be better and that pertain to your salvation. And so we know that we're writing to believers here. We know that the writer is alluding to the judgment seat of Christ. And we know that the writer is encouraging believers to be careful not to fall in this class of people whose hearts become hardened, that in and of themselves, it would be impossible for them to come back to righteousness and to walking in the will of God. However, Matthew makes it very clear, 1926, that with God, all things are possible. So God can bring the believer back into the proper relationship with him. In fact, we see this is the way God works. Most of the time, when a believer is backslidden and falls away from God, they, they haven't lost their salvation, but they're not walking for God. And though it's impossible for them to come back to the rightful place they need to be, it's not impossible for God to draw them back to where they need to be. And so, I think having a healthy perspective of Genesis—excuse uh, me—of uh, Hebrews chapter six uh, needs to be systematically looked at from all of Scripture. From the character of who God is and and what God's like through the rest of Scripture, and the notion that we've all fallen short of the glory of God, we've all sinned, and that it's God who calls us into light, into repentance. And for the believer, when we fall away, if we are backslidden, it is God who must pull us out of that backslidden state, back into a productive walk with him. Uh, Verse 10, we we see this idea of... um, walking in maturity. Uh, so verse 10, For God is not unjust. He will not forget our work um, and the love you demonstrated for his name by serving the saints and by continuing to serve them. This is just a picture of the judgment seat of Christ. God's faithful to believers to judge in a um, just way. And so God doesn't forget the works that we've done out of an unselfish heart in faith. Um, for the blessings of others and the glory of God. Uh, verse 11, Now we desire each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the full assurance of your hope until the end. So, so again, he's writing to believers, and he's saying to believers, Believers, we're warning you not to fall into this backslidden state so that you can have peace of mind and hope all the way to the end. Verse 12, we see kind of a repetition of what we see at the end of chapter 5. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. So this is essentially what the passage is saying. There is no shortcut to a deep relationship with God. You want to have a deep walk with God? You want to have a deep personal and intimate relationship with God through Christ? Um, through the work, the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, um, then that takes time. It takes effort. It means you have to pick up your Bibles and read them. It means you have to hit your knees and pray and spend time with God in prayer. It means you have to fellowship with other believers and not forsake gathering together in church houses and in discipleship groups. And so we must put in the work and put in the effort if we're going to see sanctification in our life, be what God desires. If if we're going to see God bring us to the place of full maturity so that we can become what He's created us to be and do what He's created us to do. The last section here, verses 13 um, uh, through 20, um, kind of transition us from this maturity in Christ to Jesus Christ being a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which is what, chapter 7 goes into as we think about the preeminency and the superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. 13 begins, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself. I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Now it's important to note that it's 25 years that take place between the time God promises Abraham, um, Isaac, his descendant that will. Uh, bless the entire world through him. It takes 25 years for that time. And it's a number of years later when uh, Abraham takes Isaac up to the mount to be uh, sacrificed to God because God encouraged him to do that. So here the writer of Hebrews is bringing in Abraham and and saying to us, persevere, have patience, trust in God. Um, So for the believer, God made Abraham a promise And he delivered on that promise. Verse 15 says, And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. When God makes you a promise, God will fulfill that promise. Uh, Scripture teaches that when God saves us, through the saving work of Jesus Christ, That we are sealed by the Holy Spirit of God. I want to give you some verses. So you might want to jot this down or mark it. I'll take just a second to, to repeat them. All of these verses clearly demonstrate that God is the one who secures our salvation. God saves us and he secures our salvation. And so when God saves someone, they are saved. Because God is faithful to the promise that he's made us. If you want to look at some of the passages, you look to the fourth gospel, to the gospel of John. and John chapter 6, uh, verses 37 through 40, deal with the security of the believer and how once God saves us, he keeps us saved. Um, John, the same gospel, chapter 10, verses 26 through 29, deal with the very same thing, the assurance of the believer, uh, the eternal security we have in Christ. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through verse 39. Um, Ephesians 1, uh, verses 13 and 14, and, and 1 John 5, 13. So again, the Gospel of John, John chapter 6, uh, verses 37 through 40. In the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, verse uh, uh, chapter 10, verses 26 uh, through 29. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 39. Um, Let's see, Ephesians 1, verses 13 through 14, and then 1 John, chapter 5, verse 13, we see in these passages of Scripture, clearly taught the eternal security of the believer. So here Abraham is, and uh, God's made him a promise, and just as he made Abraham a promise and kept it, so the promises he makes us, he keeps Verse 16 says, uh, we've just read it, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things, two things about God that are unchangeable, two unchangeable things in which it is, one, impossible for God to lie. So anything God's told us in his word, anything God has promised in his word, or anything that God has clearly communicated as his will um, is truth. For God is truth. It continues, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. So God can't lie. And since God can't lie, the promises he's made us, the fact that he saved us, brings us hope Um, and uh, security. Uh, The hope set before us is what verse 18 says. Verse 19, we have this hope. Again, this hope that we have. It's an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So this is a description of God keeping his promises to us. So our hope is an anchor. It's firm and it's secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Of course, this is a picture where the high priest, only the high priest once a year entered into the Holy of Holies through these curtains. Verse 20 says, Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever. So Christ made sacrifice for us. He laid down his life for us. God accepted that sacrifice, that, that um, sacrificial atonement, made through the death of Christ and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, is an eternally satisfying sacrifice. We never need Jesus to do anything more than he's already done for our salvation. For our sanctification, we need to be moving into closer walk and into maturity with Christ. And then, of course, it ends. uh, A high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, Um, that's key because the writer of Hebrews is transitioning and the next chapter, chapter 7, deals with um, Jesus Christ as our high priest and what it means to be uh, uh, of the order of Melchizedek. So listen, I I pray that um, Hebrews 6, which at times has been a stumbling block for some believers, Hebrews 6 is sometimes used as the justification for people to declare that Christians can lose their salvation. Uh, It's also been used by those who believe in eternal security to say this isn't even talking to the believer. And uh, God's changed my heart over time on this issue. has shown me things in the text and uh, within the context of the passage. And so uh, I feel very firm uh, on my foundation based on the context of the Scripture, the phrases used by the author. Uh, the nature of who God is and what scripture says as a whole concerning uh, this topic. That this is written to believers. It's a warning to believers. It's a warning to um, live a life where you're maturing in Christ. And becoming imitators of Christ. Lest you fall away and have to be saved. 1 uh, first, first Corinthians um, 3.15 Be saved but be saved through the fire. And so I encourage you, take a look at those references, the passages I've given you. Read this. Um, mull through it. Think through it. Um, always test everything, whether it's taught by me or somebody else. Always see that it aligns with the Word of God. And I think what you'll find is that Hebrews chapter 6 becomes a lot more of an encouragement to us. An encouragement to persevere, to move forward, to not grow lazy in our walk with with, uh, with God through Christ, um, but to be persistent. And if we do that, as God blessed Abraham, God will also bless us. Pray you have a wonderful beginning in, in week and look forward to seeing you on Wednesday.